And if you ever have a chance to lick a coyote on the nose, I would really recommend it as an outdoor activity. You should have seen that fish run. And I was like, man, first off, don't ever buy a gun at Stop and Go. And if you do, don't buy it for 20 <laughs> You're like a superstar because everybody who's on the jetties watching comes down and wants to take a picture with your fish. Like, they want to hold the fish and act like they caught it. And then they, like, are clapping and everything whenever you reel the fish in. I never saw a purple cow. I never hoped to see one. But I can tell you anyhow, I'd rather see than be one. All right, folks, welcome to episode 16. This episode, I go on to the More Outdoors radio show on KLVI AM 560 out of Beaumont to talk about our public oyster reefs and some proposals that Parks and Wildlife has put in place to help preserve those reefs for the future. I encourage you to listen to this podcast And then later in July, attend some of the public hearings that Parks and Wildlife has and give public comment and encourage the department to move forward with these proposals. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, stay coastal. Off our wild gulf project. It's going to be throughout all the media properties I'm involved with and real excited to um, bring awareness to what I'm now calling the Forgotten Ocean, the Gulf of Mexico and all the, we got a really exciting show tonight that we're going to have a lot of great information. My good friend Shane Bonneau with the Coastal Conservation Association, CCA, I believe celebrating their 40th year this year. Um, and we're going to be talking about some something that's going to hit every coastal fisherman, even if you don't understand the impact of it you will after this show because this issue will impact everything that has to do with bay fishing in the entire state of texas so very very important stuff back to more outdoors this is chester moore if you can listen on the air at 560 online at klvi.com on your smartphone or ipad with the free iheart radio app in the studio is a guy i've known 13 or 14 years now uh, used to work with Texas Parks and Wildlife at a Sea Center, Texas, and Lake Jackson. Now I was doing a lot of communication and things for the Coastal Conservation Association. Shane Bonneau, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Chester. Glad to be here. So what is your official title? I am officially Advocacy Director for CCA Texas, but yeah. I, I kind of serve as the in-house biologist for, yeah. for that organization. I got you. So that's one reason I want to pick your brain, because you're, you know, your brain is trained to look at the biology of what we're doing. And we're going to talk about an issue that is very biological and that is probably bigger in scope than a lot of us would ever think. You know, a lot of us just go fishing and take it for granted that we're fishing over habitat. You know, we're just going fishing, catching some fish, having a good time. But um, probably the number one kind of habitat in the bays that produces the most fish and has the most value coast-wide would be oyster. Absolutely. Oyster reefs. And um, whether you're fishing on Hannah's Reef in Galveston or one of the mini reefs down in Matagorda or you're on the big, huge reef at Mesquite Point in Sabine Lake or somewhere else on the coast, there's a reason you're fishing there because those reefs are crucial to the fisheries. And um, just in the last week, the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department has made some moves toward maybe changing some things in the oyster fishery. Can you get us up to speed on that? Yeah, sure. So last week was a commission meeting in Austin, Texas Parks and Wildlife's headquarters. And they they kind of talked about the oyster industry and the fishery specifically and some issues that the fishery is facing. Mm -hmm. And so they laid out a few proposals to the commission 
And the first one they want to look at doing is reducing the sack limit. The current okay. sack limit that a commercial license, a commercial boat can have is 40 sacks. And they want to reduce that to 25 sacks per boat. The second thing they're looking at doing is eliminating Monday as a day that they can harvest fish, so harvest oysters. So right now the fishery is closed on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Parks and Wildlife is proposing also closing Mondays. So with two days closure. Two days closure, yeah. consecutive mm-hmm. days closure. So they'd be able to fish from Tuesday through Saturday. Mm-hmm. The third thing they're looking at doing, and this one is pretty significant, they're looking at reducing the amount of undersized oysters that they can keep. So currently an oyster boat or an oyster fisherman can keep up to 15% of his catch can be under the legal size, which is three inches, a three-inch oyster. From the hinge to the, the – on the length of the oyster, from the hinge to the tip of the shell, three inches is a keeper. Well, geez, when I was a kid, I would have liked to have that for speckled trout, <laughs> redfish. Go ahead. But, uh. So, yeah, the, you know – if, if I'm an oysterman, I can go out and, and harvest uh, my 40 sacks, and currently 15% of those 40 sacks could be could be undersized, yeah. which is equates about six sacks of oysters on mm-hmm. a boat. It's quite a quite a few quite a bit. Well, they're they're uh, proposing reducing that undersized tolerance from 15 down to five percent. Wow, and that's within that's within their ability. It's in statute that they can't go lower than five. So there's a law that says they can't go lower than five. Well, it would make sense with something like oyster that you're probably going to get some stuff kind of slip in as you harvest it anyway. Yeah. I mean, that does happen. You know, the, these guys are, most of them are dredging. So they'll, they'll dredge up their oysters. And a lot of times when they get it out of the dredge, it's still in clumps and they have mm-hmm. to break them apart with a hammer and a kind of a, a chisel, this tool to knock them, knock them, and separate them. So as they're doing that, they're supposed to be calling them. You get a, a small one, a, yeah. a two-incher, throw yeah. it over the yeah. side of the boat, keep the big ones. And there's tools that help them measure that. And what happens, though, a lot of times is are these guys, the value of the oysters, is, um, oysters have become so valuable that there is some incentive there mm-hmm. to sure. get their limit, get their 40 sacks, and keep – keep whatever they can and, and get off the water in a timely fashion. So whereas in the past, oysters weren't weren't quite as valuable and there were more of them, um, they took a little more time in, in their culling process. And now you've got guys that don't really take the time to cull their oysters like they should be. But I'll say this. So these guys are harvesting thousands and thousands of oysters every yes. day. After you do something so many times, you know mm-hmm. exactly what, Three inches is versus mm-hmm. two and a half or mm-hmm. two and three quarters. You know, I used to work, you know, working at the fish hatchery. Yep. We'd harvest a pond. We would measure hundreds of fish to determine our average length. So you're sitting there with mm-hmm. the ruler measuring fish. Yep. I would play a game with, and I would guess, okay, I think this one's going to be 35 millimeters. So this yep. one's going to be 37, whatever. Mm-hmm. Got really good within a couple of millimeters wow. of guessing what that fish was going to measure. Yeah. So, when I hear people say, well, it must be hard for these guys to measure all these oysters on the boat, I, I, I have difficulty with that because they're doing this so many times. Mm-hmm. They, should, they are probably so good they can look at an oyster and know whether it's a keeper or not. I got you. So it comes down to a little bit of laziness um, during the culling process. So, yeah, reducing that from 15 to 5% is a pretty significant, pretty mm-hmm. significant proposal. And then there's two more, which I, I hope we go into greater detail this evening on. Mm-hmm. The first is closure of some minor bays to both commercial and recreational, and recreational harvest. Yeah. Okay. And I'll list those real quick. You've got 
closing Christmas Bay, mm-hmm. closing Karankawa, mm-hmm. Keller Bay, Powderhorn Lake, Hines Bay, St. Charles Bay, and South Bay, down way down the lower Laguna. So there's several bay systems, minor bay systems, that they're proposing to close, which would serve, they would be protected from recreational and commercial harvest, and these areas would serve as spawning areas, mm-hmm. conservation zones, so that these reefs in these areas are able to build up in yeah. their height and yeah. then their structure and their complexity. You have a lot of oysters that would contribute to the spawning biomass, mm-hmm. and then hopefully the tides and currents would carry the larvae Bring them along the coast. into the major bay systems yeah. Yeah. and help sustain the oysters that are in the major bay systems. That's a pretty big proposal, um, and uh, it's it's a – at least I, CCA feels that that's, that's a, a great move and, and a necessary one. You said there's one more? One more. Another big one. Close the shorelines within 300 feet or 100 yards of the shorelines. Close that. Protect those zones all up and down the coast from commercial and recreational harvest. Wow. Now, why at this time are these proposals being brought up? Is it like all of a sudden we discover there's an oyster problem? Or is it like, hold on, there's there's a trend happening here, and if we don't do something now, 20 years from now, we're going to be really be paying the price for it. Yeah, I think we'll have to back up a little bit. Okay. I mean, there's there's probably several layers to that to that question. <laughs> I figured there was. <laughs> so, just speaking specifically to to the biology and mm-hmm. and and to what's going on in the habitat. So. 2008, Hurricane Ike came in Mm -hmm. and wiped out a majority of the oyster reefs in Galveston Bay. And Galveston Bay historically has supported the commercial oyster industry in Texas. Mm -hmm. I I don't remember. I think maybe somewhere around 80% of -hmm. our oysters that we'd harvest would come out of the Galveston Bay system. So we lost a significant portion Mm -hmm. of our oyster fishery because of Hurricane Ike um, silted over a Mm -hmm. lot of the oyster reefs. Then, years after that, we had 2008, I mean, not 2008, 2011 to 2015, just were a major drought. Yeah. So salinities rose significantly, which um, makes conditions a little more favorable for predators that like to yeah, eat because the oysters. Yeah, things like oysters, you have to have that balance of the fresh and salt. I do. You do. Yeah. You do. And, and they have, a, they have a, a wide range of salinities that they can thrive in. Uh-huh. Uh, they, they prefer the brackish, you know, 10 to 20 parts per thousand, mm-hmm. but they can go down to almost nearly fresh and mm-hmm. thrive all the way up to 30 parts per thousand. Mm-hmm. So they have this wide salinity tolerance, but they do prefer that middle range. And it is good for them for freshwater flush to come through real quick and let the salinities come up real quick, but never really stay super fresh or sure. super salty. They don't like that. So uh, we had a drought 2011 to 2015. It allowed oyster drills, hermit crabs, and all these other predators that like to eat oysters. Mm-hmm. They, they thrive in those conditions. So a lot of oysters uh, succumbed to that pressure. Then we had floods, two years of floods, right? Yes. 2015, 2000, everyone remembers the floods of last year specifically. And that killed a lot of oysters. So you have all these environmental things going on. And what has happened is it has forced the oyster industry to move from Galveston Bay to these other smaller, smaller bases to, to yeah. harvest the oysters. I, I heard a lot about the Christmas Bay move. You know, that was something that I just heard from people, you know, that were fishing down in there. If you've never fished or been around Christmas Bay, beautiful, pristine area, and all of a sudden there's oyster boats, you know, and it was kind of a shock to a lot of people. Yeah, the Christmas Bay hadn't been fished in 
many, many years. Yeah. I don't have the exact figure, but it has been a, a coastal preserve mm-hmm. for a couple of decades now, I think since the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. And because of because of its unique habitat within the Galveston Bay mm-hmm. system complex, between between the Galveston Bay, it's there's not a lot of human influence in the mm-hmm. Christmas Bay area. It has seagrass. It has oysters. It has this really unique mosaic of different habitats. And so as a coastal preserve, and there's I think there's 24 coastal preserves all up and down the, the, our, our Texas coastline. Christmas Bay was one of them. Well, Christmas Bay was opened this year. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the last spots that the commercial industry had left to harvest. It was pretty much Christmas Bay and East Matagorda Bay. And so, yeah, you had a significant amount of the industry move into Christmas Bay in a short period of time mm-hmm. and um, really applied some destructive mm-hmm. harvesting practices in that small area, and it made a huge impact. Well, we're going to take a break, and we're going to talk about how oysters are harvested. We're going to talk about how the fact that this isn't a proposal necessarily to get rid of the oyster industry. And we're going to dig into this issue on oysters, and which is an incredibly important issue for the Gulf Coast. Um, and really, I want you to think about this same as how many times you've been fishing over an oyster reef. There's a reason. We'll talk more about that when we come back on More Outdoors. Chester Moore and having a great time talking to my buddy Shane Benoit, who is with the Coastal Conservation Association, talking about the oyster issue. Parks and Wildlife has released, I think it's a five-pronged uh, you know, position or uh, different um, aspects of things they're wanting to look at on Flounder and maybe make a decision at their August meeting. In the, I mean, at Flounder, excuse me. I'm <laughs> such a Flounder-centric guy. I That's all we talk about, you and I, is Flounder. So we're so shipping this is... oysters. Oysters. We're, we're in strange Chester. territory yeah, here. But oy- flounder like oyster reefs. But um, <laughs> believe it or not, and catch some big flounder on those suckers. But uh, And the reason is because of a uh, – we're going to recap a little bit. A lot of environmental changes, the amount of silt that was put in Galveston Bay, which is about 80% of the oyster fishery that killed off a bunch of reef, uh, droughts that increased the salinity and therefore increased certain predators of oysters, uh, you know, harvest a lot of factors, and they're trying to make a stand for oysters. And um, you know, a lot of interesting proposals we'll recap for the show's over with. But um, I want to talk about what an oyster reef is supposed to be, Okay. And there's a very special oyster reef on the Texas coast, and it is in Sabine Lake at Mesquite Point. We just call it the reef over here. But that oyster reef hasn't had the kind of harvest that the ones have over it, just right across the, you know, the marsh in Galveston Bay. Yeah, so the Sabine, the Sabine Lake Reef, um, from what I've seen in talking with Parks and Wildlife, they don't have any harvest records for it for the past 60 years. Yeah. So that reef has been closed for a, a long time for I'm sure several reasons, mm-hmm. um, environmental uh, and health concerns mm-hmm. are likely the, the two largest. But that reef is a really good indication of what a reef could be mm-hmm. if you left it left it alone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've heard Par- Parks and Wildlife speak to kind of some of the, the structure of that reef. And, you know, areas on that reef measure four to six feet in height. So, wow, as tall as a man in some spaces and some spaces not of course not all every, not everything's alive within that sure. six foot zone i mean oysters build on top of one another and eventually they die so but anyhow there is there is this large 
uh, vertical habitat that mm-hmm. you guys have here in Sabine Lake. And you don't see that anywhere else on the Texas coast because uh, the rest of the coast has been open to oyster harvest. I think, I hope I don't get this wrong. Jerry Mambretti, who worked for Parks and Wildlife for many years, told me there were some oysters there that could be like two feet long, really huge oysters. I yeah, I don't know. He I mean, just, he told me some kind of oyster that was on there that was, you know, that grew really huge because they've never had any, you know, harvest at the time. And um, there was also some studies done showing the amount of biodiversity in the vicinity of the reef versus just the open lake. And it was pretty incredible. So what all species benefit from a healthy oyster reef? Well, there's there's been several studies done on this, and you know, Parks and Wildlife has done some, and then there's been some research done all across the United States on the benefits of oyster reefs, and they really serve three functions. They serve as food within within the base system. They're a food source for some aquatic species. They serve as refuge, you know, the place where fish can mm-hmm. go hide and shelter, and they serve as, as habitat. So they they really serve a unique purpose in our in our base systems. And what is interesting is that uh, the amount of species that mm-hmm. they support. Mm-hmm. There's been 303 different aquatic species identified that benefit or that, that associate with an oyster reef. Wow. Which is far greater than any sort of other habitat that you see in the water. And in fact, an oyster reef within close proximity to a shoreline supports 11 and a half times the aquatic biomass mm-hmm. as say like a spartina marsh or a cord grass yeah. shoreline it supports 11 and a half times the biomass that you would see on the shoreline Incredible. and it supports four and a half times the biomass that you see in seagrass wow and that's another key crucial habitat in parts of the coast it is wow. and so this the, i think you know when you asked earlier you know kind of why these these proposals Mm-hmm. And Parks and Wildlife is 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 recognizing one. There's a problem with the oyster with with the, our oyster fishery. Two, we're seeing really destructive harvest practices, most recently in Caronqua Bay and Christmas Bay and places like that. And so we're destroying these shoreline reefs, mm-hmm. and they really serve a unique function with our bay systems. And there's been some peer-reviewed journals published that support this. But that habitat mosaic with with oyster reefs mixed in with sh- the shoreline and the seagrass support a large amount of, of aquatic species, and we really need to think about protecting that and preserving that for you know future generations for my kids, my grandkids, your your you know faith, and you know hopefully her children one day. So we have to we have to think about protecting them now. And looking at what's been done in the past with with these destructive har- harvest practices, and ways that we can prevent that from happening in the future. You mentioned destructive practices. Um, how are oysters harvested in Texas? Well, most oysters are either tonged yeah. or dredged in deeper water out of a boat. What is tonging? A tonging is basic is 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 a long tool, mm-hmm. and you you dip it down in the water. The only thing I could think to compare it with would be a set of Postal diggers, okay, really long postal diggers, but instead of two cups at the end, you have you have like teeth and a rake at the end. So the the teeth, you drive the tonger down, pull the lever, 
the teeth come together and form a basket and you mm-hmm. scoop the oysters up. So that's not that destructive of a practice. I mean, it actually, is, it's, a, it's a good way to harvest oysters. Dredging is, is more destructive because you're using, you know, a boat powered by an engine and you're dragging uh, a, a dredge behind a boat. And I think right now the, the width of the dredge is about four feet. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you're dra- dragging this four foot dredge across an oyster reef. And it's just a little more destructive than, than hand tonging. So that's how the oysters are harvested. But because there's not a whole lot of keeper oysters left on our public reefs in mm-hmm. deeper water, the um, harvesters are having to resort to these different measures that we've never really seen before, at least not applied in, yeah. in masses. So a lot of shoreline reefs were harvested this year. Four-wheelers were driven up and down shoreline marshes and across bird rookery islands. Mm-hmm. Uh, trucks were, were backed onto reefs on a low tide and oysters were were harvested from the shoreline reefs. They created these uh, more or less miniature barges Mm -hmm. built out of plywood and two-by-fours floating on 50-gallon drums, and they would drag these barges behind them as they walked up and down the shorelines uh, harvesting these oysters, um, creating uh, or retrofitting flats fishing boats that you normally would use to, to drift across a seagrass flat. They outfitted these really shallow drafting boats to go into these areas that they normally don't go into and harvest from. So in other words, there's a big concern because some new sort of harvesting practices um, moving on from the traditional areas because of the habitat degradation, et cetera, going into some of the more pristine areas and some of the areas that you say that the shorelines themselves are the most productive area in terms of biomass. So yeah. lots of concern on that. Um, We're going to take one last break. We're going to come back and talk more oyster solutions. We're going to find out if there's still going to possibly be an oyster fishery. Is that something that's being looked at? Our license is going to be bought back. And uh, just some final words about oysters in Texas and good things going to be done to conserve our wildlife habitat. Welcome back to More Outdoor. This is Chester Moore. We're talking with Shane Benoit from the Coastal Conservation Association celebrating 40 years of conservation. Started back as the Gulf Coast Conservation Association. And if you're just a listener who tunes in for the wildlife, it's the Redfish Bumper Sticker people. That's where you know. <laughs> if you see the cool Redfish Bumper Stickers or now the license plate you can get that helps yeah, CCA's efforts. absolutely. That's the Coastal Conservation Association, not just limited to the Gulf Coast or Texas, nationwide now. There's 19 chapters across the nation. Yeah, State chapters. Pretty amazing. You know, they're doing work with salmon up in Oregon and all kind of different stuff, bluefish and all kind of stuff. So, incredible organization. I've had a, the honor and privilege of working with on various things in the media over the years. Tonight we're talking about um, oysters. And, you know, oyster is habitat. And uh, when I've t- spoken about aquatic habitat before, I've always kind of bring it to down to think about deer hunting. You can take, uh, I say, a thousand acres of pasture with no trees, and it'll probably support a few deer here and there. You start planting that thing with the right kind of trees, and in, at some point you're going to have a big booming deer population. Well, you take some habitat out there that's been degraded, maybe an oyster that's been degraded or over-harvested or basically down to nothing or silted in or whatever happened, and then all of a sudden you allow that habitat to come back and be what you know it's intended to be, 
And then you have an opportunity for a healthier fishery. You know, we're talking hundreds of species around these things. I mean, how many times have you caught specks, reds, even flounder around an oyster reef? There's a reason for that. These are crucial areas, and we have to look at things um, like habitat now. It's hard sometimes the fishermen to get your head around habitat because we don't, we don't see it as much, right? We're not in the water looking at it as much. But it's incredibly crucial, and these are vital steps to having um, a, a healthy fishery for future generations and current generations. Um, this proposal, I believe, there's also uh, a plan to buy back um, through the legislature that Governor Abbott has not signed yet, a buyback program for the licenses. Yeah, so you know, Parks and Wildlife has these five proposals that mm-hmm. they're that they're presenting mm-hmm. to the Parks and Wildlife Commission, but separate, you know, separate from that, this past legislative session, there's House Bill 51, yep. which is the Commercial Oyster License Buyback Program. So that bill passed the House and Senate, and it's awaiting the governor's signature, and it basically will allow willing participants within the fishery to sell their license back to the state, and the state thinks that they need to get the fishery down to about 250 commercial oyster licenses and there's about 550 to 580 of them and out you said there right maybe now. 350 were kind of reporting there's about 350 reporting mm-hmm. landings so there are a few we call them latent licenses or mm-hmm. just inactive yeah. licenses you probably would have to buy, you'd have to buy those as well sure. so you get through those first and then you get into the meat of the fishery the ones that are actually fishing but it's it's working with 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 the industry to allow willing participants to, mm-hmm. to get out of the, the industry. Because I like to eat oysters. You know? Oh, I do too. I, lo- I, I love oysters. I'm not necessarily for shutting the oyster fishery down. This is not going to do that. But it's going to make it uh, more conservation friendly. And probably for the guys actually making a living or trying to make a living doing this, probably more profitable. It will you know, the, the price of oysters continues to go up because the demand is so high and we are seeing a limited supply. So make no mistake about it, these additional measures aren't going to make oysters any cheaper. Sure. And me as a as an oyster connoisseur, I'm <laughs> fine with that because I know every time I go buy a, a dozen on the half shell or a sack from the, from the oyster dealer, I know that that extra pi- price that I am pr- paying is because – I'm making a difference. These proposed mm-hmm. changes are going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Something else that we talked about during the break that's crucial with any of these any of these kinds of organisms is filtration. You know, they're filtering water all the time. And that's got to make a difference in terms of water quality and also stabilization of shoreline habitat, you know, erosion, those kind of things. Yeah, you look at those things that the oysters provide in the water, those ecosystem services. Yep. And there's been some papers published that look at okay what's the value of that oyster in the water Mm -hmm. and this is a wide range but this is in published literature the value of the of oyster reef habitat is anywhere from thirteen thousand dollars per acre Mm -hmm. to two hundred and forty four thousand dollars per acre so if you look at the amount of acreage that parks and wildlife is proposing closing for for um, mm-hmm. the, the shoreline component and the yeah. minor bay component, it's like 3,200 acres. Yeah. So extrapolate that out. You're looking at a 42 million to a I think it's 780 million dollar value fishery that you are protecting because these oysters filter 50 gallons of water per minute. They stabilize our shorelines, like you mentioned. They they um, they 
actually help seagrass because they break up the wave attenuation mm-hmm. and make the water clearer. So there's all these services they provide in the water that we don't always think about. Sure. We just think about the dockside price and the value to the commercial industry. We don't think about their value in the water. Well, the goal and mission of this program is to raise awareness to wildlife conservation, both aquatic, on land, in the air, wherever there's wildlife, we're supporting conservation. And um, these are great measures because it addresses that key habitat issue on the Gulf Coast. And we know that the growth areas in terms of population are going to be on the Gulf Coast. And we've got to make sure and ensure that the habitat is, um, is, is not only – in good shape, but it has a chance to be what it's supposed to be for everyone out there. And, you know, I'm looking at an issue like this, and, you know, and before, if, if I go to a public hearing on trout limits, there's going to be 500 people show up, and there may be a fist fight or two, right? <laughs> you go to something sometimes on, like, oysters or dioxins, it's a kind of a disconnect. It's harder to kind of dig into these issues. So if you miss part of this program, please go back and listen to the podcast and, um, and, and check out because Shane's on a great idea of outlining how important and valuable the oyster fishery is here in Texas. You know, um, none of us are too fond of too much government. I don't know anybody who's like, yay, more government. But the fact is, in Texas, in terms of natural resources, we have done an astoundingly good job of managing our resources. I travel a lot. And it, people, our parks and wildlife is the envy of a lot of other states in the way we manage our fisheries. Would you agree? They absolutely are. And, and you are slightly, slightly biased, biased yeah. because I used to work for <laughs> used them. To work for them. That's okay. But no, they're, they're highly qualified professionals, and they, they care deeply about um, our coastal resources. And they don't, they don't just propose measures like this half-heartedly. I mean, a lot of thought and, and science – have gone into these proposals mm-hmm. and and I know that they believe in these proposals and they they trust that it's going to do some of the things that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the we can't keep doing the same sort of management practices, mm-hmm. reducing bag limits or mm-hmm. or closing the amount of days they can harvest. We like we've done all that stuff. Sure. And we're still in this position. We've really got to think outside the box. Apply some different management practices and let's let that help us recover no i like that and uh, if someone's just thinking of why should i support cca maybe they've seen the cool bumper sticker and and really like maybe they just got into fishing and they say i like to give back why should someone support something like cca well cca is a great nonprofit organization dedicated to conserving our marine resources Mm -hmm. and not only fish not only oysters but the the habitat that support our fish and our oysters and our coastal resources. We are a, a volunteer-driven organization. All the decisions made within the organization come from the core volunteers, and um, and we have around seventy-two thousand members in Texas, highly passionate about protecting their you know their fisheries and uh, their their lifestyle for you know their kids and their grandkids. So. If you want to get involved in an organization with just some really great men and women that love to fish, that love to – are just really great outdoor enthusiasts, CCA is where it's at, and we'd, we'd welcome you. You can get information at ccatexas.org. That's it. And if you're interested in this Parks of Wildlife, we'd like to say on either side of the aisle what your opinions are. It's going to be held at the Texas Parks and Wildlife headquarters in Austin. Yeah, and there's – August 23rd, right? August 23rd and 24th, this commission meeting. But prior to that, mm-hmm. 
they'll announce uh, up, up and down the coast. Yeah. Some some meetings. There'll probably be one in Galveston, one in Bay City. Mm-hmm. I suspect there may be one up here in Beaumont. I'm not sure, but they'll announce some public hearings so that everyone will have everybody along the different areas can have a shot at yes. looking at. We don't have yes. those dates yet, but we'll filter them out there when we get yeah. those dates because it's important for everyone, no matter what your opinion is, to have those out there. It's Absolutely. very important that people got to speak up for what you people can in. speak up of what's going on out there. Yeah. And um, I tell you what, we've entered an era where habitat is where it's at in terms of conservation. I think we've known it for a long time. A lot of great things have been done, species specific, and still can be, but. The habitat of the Gulf Coast is absolutely crucial, and the more we learn about it, the more we dig into it, the more we realize what incredible precious resources that we have here. And uh, whether you're really hardcore and paddling miles back into the Keith Lake system to catch tailing redfish, or maybe you just like to take your kids crabbing from the side of the road somewhere, um, all of this we're talking about with oysters and other and seagrass and all these issues are vitally important to making sure those traditions can stay alive. And um, not just that. I mean, it's, it's for the critters, too. It's not just a speckled trout or the flounder or the black drum or whatever else it's also the other little things you never see down there that are living on that reef that are vital to the marine ecosystem Uh, i like biodiversity and oysters symbolize biodiversity they're very tasty biodiversity that they do (laughs) and i do like mine fried not much on the half shell thing but i can eat a lot of fried oysters make myself sick eating them so uh, we're hoping that solutions can be made to keep an oyster fishery going but also at the same time Let's put the resource first. If we don't put resources first in what we're doing, we're not going to have a resource that's worth uh, pursuing in any way. And I think that's what Texas Parks and Wildlife has done a really good job of in the past, and CCA has certainly done a great job of advocacy as well. So thank you for being on the show tonight. Thanks, Chester. And had a great time with Shane Beneau, Texas um, Parks and Wildlife is where I met him, but now he's with CCA. So uh, we're glad to have him as an advocacy director for CCA. Glad to have him back on the show. Well, maybe we can get him every once in a while to come talk about some of these crucial issues with us. Absolutely. Anytime. All right. Thank you guys so much. Just remember, habitat is important, folks. Support conservation. Support groups like CCA, Ducks Unlimited, others who um, care about the habitat. Because without the habitat, we don't have the critters. Without the critters, you can't go fishing and hunting. So remember that. Support Key Habitat. God bless you, and have a great outdoors weekend.